are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number four in the series. Today's episode is titled, Circe. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I am choosing to title this particular episode, Circe. So if you will recall, we left Odysseus and what remains of his original crew of 600 men and 12 ships offshore of the island of the Lastragonians, the giant cannibal people. And if you will remember, in that particular island, well, Odysseus lost about 80% of his ships and crew. Now we are down to exactly one boat and precisely 45 crew members plus Odysseus himself. And it has become pretty obvious to even the most uh, dim-witted or unimaginative, I suppose, of Odysseus's remaining crew that Poseidon, the god of the sea, has decided to honor the curse of the Cyclops Polythemus. And it is likely fair for us to say, ladies and gentlemen, that by this stage in their journey, Odysseus, in fact, the entire crew are psychologically shattered men. The most recent one-two punch had likely done the men. Uh, there had been Aeolius's bag of wind, which uh, for a brief promising moment looked like salvation and instant homecoming before that had blown up in their faces, I suppose. And then, of course, there had been the horror of witnessing most of the crew stacked on the shore like so many salmon, where the Lastragonians, of course, were going to be having sailors for dinner for weeks to come. We sailed on from that island, Odysseus accounts, heartsick. And of course, the crew no longer had any idea where precisely they were sailing on to. They were now simply pawns of the winds of the Mediterranean, or more accurately, I suppose, pawns of the malevolent god who was blowing them around the Mediterranean. Poseidon was selecting islands for Odysseus and crew to land on, and then miserable things seemed to be happening on each of those islands. Well, some days later, a new island came into view. From the sea, the island looked deserted, no harbor, no ships, no people, but the sand beach looked at least partially promising as a safe place to spend the night. So the crew rowed their boat up near the shore and set anchor. But by now, quite understandably, I suppose, a form of island fear had seeped deep into every one of the veins of the crew members. Islands and landfalls had proven total disasters to date. So Odysseus and his men, though they anchored inside of the new island's sandy beached harbor, could not will themselves to set foot on dry land. We lay on our ship for two nights and for two days, eating out our hearts in misery, Odysseus accounts. Then finally, 
On the morning of the third day, Odysseus woke up and realized that, well, somebody needed to explore the island. Uh, the crew needed food, and even more importantly than food, uh, the crew needed somebody, someplace, somewhere that could provide some form of Xenia. The specific thing they needed, of course, uh, was a decent roadmap back to the island of Ithaca itself. They had no idea where they were. They weren't going to find their way without a little bit of help. So Odysseus armed himself with a spear, armed himself with a sword and a bow and arrow, and set off on his own, hiking inland through the heavily forested island, hoping that if he could find some high point of land, he could reconnoiter from there and, well, see if the island offered anything promising by way of human habitation or hospitality. Well, eventually he made his way to the top of a cliff, and way off in the distance in the heart of the island, Odysseus spotted what he was looking for, the smoke from a cooking fire. Somebody, or some group of somebodies, clearly lived on this island. Now, Odysseus, if this had been some days or some islands or some adventures earlier, would no doubt at this point have briskly and confidently headed inland towards the location of the smoking cook fires. Uh, entirely confident, of course, that he, Odysseus, Polytropus man, could deal with whatever surprises or chance encounters he met by way of people inland. But the island fear had seeped into Odysseus's blood, too. Not that he'd ever admit it, he was the hero of the story after all. But his account of what he did once he spotted those cooking fires off in the distance is rather telling. Uh, listen to what Odysseus says. I wondered if I should investigate what I was seeing. But after some thought, I decided that it would be for the best to return to my ship to give my men breakfast, and then to choose a party of men to go out and reconnoiter. So, instead of heading boldly towards the source of the cook fire, Odysseus headed boldly back to the safety of his ship, only stopping along the way to spear a sizable deer and, while thus returning to his grateful crew with breakfast. And when Odysseus arrived back at the ship, he discovered that his crew were even in worse psychological shape than when he had left. The men were now all hunched up on the deck in fetal positions, covering their bodies up in cloaks, hiding, as if it were, from whatever was on that island. But it turns out that back in the Bronze Age, as today, there is nothing like a good little bit of barbecue and a stiff drink or two to chase away even the worst of the island fears. So Odysseus slaughtered the deer, butchered it up, roasted it on a spit, pulled out of the last of the Ismerian wine from the hold of the ship, and some time later, the gloom had collectively lifted from the crew. And that is when Odysseus had announced his plan. Listen, boys. We don't have the slightest idea where we are. Still, we have to find some way out of here. Uh, we need some sort of sensible plan, though I really doubt that there is one. Not exactly inspiring words, but Odysseus went on to describe to the men that he had seen indications of some sort of a cooking fire deep inland, and that clearly some of us need to go inland and see who lives in this island. Well, the crew's hearts sank. Nobody wanted to go inland. Uh, going inland in islands had proven bad news in absolutely every adventure so far. Finally, Odysseus came up with a plan. He decided for precaution's sake that he would divide the remaining crew into two equal groups of 22 men apiece. Then he would appoint himself leader of one of the groups and appoint a second in command to lead the other group. 
The second in command was a gentleman named Eurylochus, a, a, a bright guy by all accounts, and a distant cousin of Odysseus himself. Then, once the two parties had been organized, Odysseus said, it's only a matter, boys, of drawing lots. One of the parties will stay and guard the ship, and the other, somewhat less fortunate party, will head deep into the forest in search of whoever is responsible for that cooking fire. Well, lots were drawn, and Eurylochus's lot came up short. So Eurylochus and his 22 members were going to have to do the inland hike to discover who was responsible for those cooking fires. Now, I would like to report that Odysseus and his 22-member team who had to get to stay at the safety of the ship then offered up comforting words and bucked up Eurylochus and the crew with statements like, don't worry, I'm sure you will find a perfect Zinnia, but it's not exactly what happened. In fact, the men staying at the ship broke into a lament or even a funeral dirge, if you will, crying and already saying goodbye and lamenting the death of Eurylochus and the 22 men heading into that forest. But Eurylochus had no choice. He had drawn the short straw, so he and his 22-member reconnoiter team headed bravely into the woods. Soon, they arrived at a clearing. And in the clearing, they found a rather lovely house, built of beautiful polished stones and most certainly the source of the cooking fire. They could see smoke rising from the chimney. And from inside of the house, they could clearly make out a voice, a female voice, singing ever so sweetly. And the familiar sound of the shuttle of a weaving loom. Now, for Eurylochus and the men, this was promising news indeed. Uh, they had expected to find some sort of a cannibal or a, or a cyclops or, or some drug-pushing stoners called lotus eaters or something like that. And, and, and here was the most benign, banal, and familiar of sounds, the sound of a female voice singing and working at that uh, most commonplace of bronze-age female things to work at, a weaving loom. Possibly, just possibly, things might turn out better than expected here on this particular island. But what happened the very next moment? Well, the sailors were not ready for that. As the men stood, staring at the door of the cottage and deciding which of them would step forward and knock on the door requesting Zinnia, suddenly from behind the door of the cottage came a stampede of wild animals. A, a huge pride of lions and a pack of wolves. I know, ladies and gentlemen, we can only imagine how Eurylochus and his men would have responded to, to this sudden change of events. You're standing there in front of what looks like a very normal domestic scene at a very normal cottage, and suddenly you're surrounded by lions and by wolves. Well, the first experience, of course, of the men would have been shock, and immediately defensive instincts would have kicked in. Eurylochus wouldn't have even had to give the order. The men would have had their swords up and drawn right away, ready to defend themselves. Uh, lions can kill men, so can a pack of wolves. But a moment after that, as, as the men were recovering from that particular physical shock, there would have been the cognitive shock. Because the lions and the wolves, they were predatory animals towards human beings, of course, but even more so, lions and wolves are predatory animals towards each other. These lions and wolves should have been tearing each other a bit and not sort of working in what appeared to be some sort of collective harmony or purpose. And, and, and then on top of that, as the men tried to adjust to that little bit of cognitive dissonance, there was the third strange thing about the animals. Uh, the animals were not roaring or growling or howling in any sort of menacing way. Rather, 
The animals were actually, well, they looked like a pack of friendly puppies uh, coming up and rubbing their noses, hopefully against the sailors, standing on their hind legs and, and wagging their tails in what could not be described as anything like a predatory lion or wolf fashion. The lions appeared and the wolves appeared to be totally tame and comfortable, very comfortable indeed, in the presence of human beings. Now, who knows how long that scene lasted. Eurylochus does not report. But as the men stood there, marveling at these animals, suddenly their attention was drawn to the front door of the cottage. A woman stepped out, clearly the woman who had been singing and working at her loom. And, well, the only way to describe that woman is that she was stunning. A a, a knockout. Odysseus later describes her as gorgeous. Now, for Eurylochus and his sailor friends, the 22 men, you have to recall, ladies and gentlemen, that these boys have been sitting camped in canvas tents on the beaches of Troy for the last 10 years, then being blown around the Mediterranean and not encountering anything attractive in female. So the woman standing there in front of them was a sight for sore eyes and so beautiful that she was beyond the fantasies or the dreams of even those 23 sailors now standing and staring at her. This was getting pretty interesting as far as the sailors are concerned. And best of all, the woman stepped forward, smiled, oh so pleasingly, and then invited them to enter her humble cottage for, she said, some zenia. And ladies and gentlemen, never has the Greek word for hospitality rolled so seductively off of the female tongue. Come on into my cottage, boys, the woman cooed. My serving girls and I, we will attend to your every need. Well, the sailors did not need to be invited into the cottage twice. Ladies and gentlemen, moments earlier, they had stepped into this clearing half expecting to die at the hands of some horrifying monster. And and now suddenly, instead of death, well, here was the most beautiful woman they had ever seen in their entire lives, uh, offering them Zania, hospitality. And, well, the woman apparently, it seemed, lived all alone in this tropical paradise of an island. And Uh, For those sailors, all 23 of them, who had been away from their wives and girlfriends for well over 10 long years, there is no doubt that there was more than a wee bit of sexual tension now in the air as the woman smiled and said, Come on into my kitchen, boys. And we can only, of course, imagine, well, how the sailors responded. But if this were a 21st century story and a similar event were to happen on some magical island in the Mediterranean, it's not hard and much of a stretch to imagine uh, the 23 men high-fiving each other, cheering, and then congratulating each other with things like, uh, this is amazing, can you believe our luck? Or statements like, this is just absolutely too good to be true. And, of course, it was that absolutely too good to be true which caught the attention of our second-in-command, Eurylochus, Odysseus's cousin, and, as Odysseus said, a very intelligent man. And, of course, poor Eurylochus, living inside of the Bronze Age, well, he had no way of knowing 
about all of humanity's later cautionary tales about bad things that happen when people head deep dark into the forest and discover cottages. Just ask Hansel and Gretel or the Little Red Riding Hood how things turn out in those sorts of stories. But Eurylochus, even though he lived in the Bronze Age, well, his spidey senses, to use another reference that would have been lost in poor Eurylochus, well, his spidey senses began tingling. This cottage can't be good news, Eurylochus decided. And as the 22 men under his charge marched eagerly, into the cottage. Eurylochus discreetly stepped aside, waiting outside. I think I'll see what happens before I enter, Eurylochus reasoned. This really is too good a cottage to be true. But ladies and gentlemen, inside of that cottage, well, the 22 sailors who had entered, they were having the time of their lives. The woman had gone on to introduce herself. She said, hello, boys. My name is Circe. And then further, she had informed the boys of something fairly improbable inside of the Bronze Age. She said, I live alone on this island. I, I'm single, I'm unmarried, and I'm only accompanied by my four handmaidens who, well, help me out with the housework and various and sundry domestic chores. Now, folks, Circe wouldn't have actually had to say anything particularly overtly sexual in order to trigger these 22 sailors. The very fact that this was the bronze patriarchal world, and here the men had stumbled across a ravishingly beautiful, unaccompanied, unescorted female, living all alone on a cottage accompanied by only four handmaidens, well, that was sexual trigger enough for any Bronze Age man. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, had of this been a proper Bronze Age cottage, when the men had have arrived and knocked on the door, well, they most likely would have been offered Zinnia, but the Zinnia they would have been offered would have been offered by the man who owned the island or the cottage. And his wife and his daughters, of course, would have been sensibly sequestered someplace off in the ladies' quarters. So though Circe didn't have to say anything, the very fact of her beauty, the fact that she was living alone and that there were no men in the scene, already made her an appropriate source of predatory male interest. Well, Circe smiled. She invited the men to take comfortable chairs and then she asked them if they would like a drink. And Circe stepped into her kitchen and began her work on mixing drinks for all 22 of those men. Now, folks, the drink that she made is actually really kind of interesting. The drink, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, is called Kaikion, K-Y-K-E-O-N. And it actually shows up in an awful lot of Homeric-era sources, and again, inside of classical Greece. Uh, the drink it plays a central role inside of some religious rites, and sometimes it's just served as a comforting sort of pick-me-upper on a cold winter night. So Circe went to work on making a big goblet of kaikion for each of the men. And if you decide at home that you want to make yourself a comforting and nourishing glass of kaikion, here's what you need to do. The first thing you have to do is you have to obtain a large quantity of pramnian wine. Now, if you can't find any pramnian wine, it's because pramnian wine comes from a particular island inside of the Mediterranean world and on the particular slopes of that island. But it turns out that any high alcohol, high octane red wine will suffice. So you take your pramnian or substitute red wine, you put it on to the stove and you heat it up until it starts to get warm, but not so warm as to destroy the powerful effects of the alcohol. 
While the wine is heating, Circe went to work on grinding and roasting a sizable quantity of barley. Then, once the wine had reached an appropriate temperature for drinking, Circe stirred the ground-roasted barley into the hot wine. Then into that particular mixer, Circe grated hard sheep cheese until the sheep cheese had melted. Finally, Circe added a healthy dollop of honey, simply to taste, topped it all with a little bit more red wine to get it to a consistent level for drinking, poured it into the goblets, and asked the gentlemen if they were ready for their drink. Well, as the men were cheering, clearly they were looking forward to the Pramnian wine, Circe, her back to the men, slipped a little bit of a mickey into the wine concoction. She drugged the wine. Then she served it to the men. And the sailors, thrilled to be drinking, thrilled to be in a cottage with a stunningly beautiful, single, unaccompanied or unescorted woman, where the sailors began to behave like pigs. And, of course, the effects of copious quantities of alcohol on large packs of young men, particularly large packs of young men in some form of uniform, be it military or sporting, well, the effects of that alcohol on young men haven't changed too much between the Bronze Age and our own 21st century. And before long, the 22 men in Circe's cottages were violating even the most basic rules expected of a guest when a guest has been provided with Xenia. But unlike the usual way in which these stories usually end, which is very bad news for the woman concerned, in this particular case, the evening ended very badly instead for the men. Because as Odysseus's crew continued to drink Circe's specially concocted wine, and as Odysseus's crew, no doubt, began to devolve even beyond, well, the minimal standards of misogyny set inside of the Bronze Age patriarchal world of this story, Circe had sighed, shook her head, then reached for her wand. And yes, folks, if you haven't already figured it out, Circe is not a usual girl. Circe is an enchantress. And then Circe had tapped each of the 22 sailors gently on the sailor's shoulders with said wand. And she had stood back to enjoy the spectacle. And gradually, ladies and gentlemen, those 22 sailors sitting there at Circe's table, holding goblets of Pramnian wine in their hands, well, they began to morph from large, drunken adult men into large, fat pigs. Sitting at Circe's table, still wearing their bronze armor, and now, strangely, struggling clumsily to grasp onto the drinking mugs. It turns out it's really, really, really difficult to get a good grip on a drinking mug when your opposable thumb has morphed into a cloven hoof. Now, folks, it actually took some time for the men to realize what was happening to them. And, and initially, when they began to notice these strange changes to their bodies, well, of course, they would have simply blamed it on having drunk too much of the wine. And, and you can imagine how the conversations would have worked. Uh, a man sitting at the table would have kind of thought, man, I, man, I've really, really got to stop drinking now because uh, I can't even hold my glass. Uh, my, my hoof seems to be getting in the way. 
I've got a hoof. How did that happen? And another sailor might have looked across the table at the guy that he had bunked down with on the beaches of Troy for the last 10 years and, and, and tried to call out to his buddy, dude, dude, you are way uglier than I ever realized. That is one heck of a snout you've got going there for a face. Before, of course, he would have realized that his dude buddy of the last 10 years now had a snout instead of a nose on his face. And, and at that stage, another one of the men likely would have turned around and, and uncomfortable complained about how his tail wasn't sitting comfortably on the base of the chair. Until, of course, he realized that he now had a tail. How did that happen? Ladies and gentlemen, the true horror of what Circe had done to the 22 men is that her drug was transforming the men's bodies, but in no way transforming the men's minds. So as the men slowly morphed into 150-pound pigs, their human brains were there to account and witness the entire horrifying spectacle. No, no doubt when the realization hit them that Circe had drugged them, something bad was happening, they had done what any soldier would do and reached for their swords to defend themselves and, and to possibly kill this enchantress who had done this to them. But, of course, then the cloven hoof would have proven a problem with gripping onto the sword. So they might have tried to organize some sort of resistance, yelling and screaming to each other. And, of course, all that would have come out is various and sundry grunts, squeaks, and oinking sounds. Well, eventually, the metamorphosis was complete. And now, instead of 22 sailors behaving like pigs, there were 22 sailors transformed into pigs. Circe stood up with a smile. She held up a huge bag of acorns, the favorite food of real biological pigs. And then, smiling at the sailors, said, Come along, boys. I have acorns for you. Well, the sailors, their human brains protesting, would have replied with something like, I'm a Greek man. I'm not a pig. I don't even like acorns. But sometimes, folks, the mind is willing, but the pig flesh is weak. The pig men caught the smell of the acorns and then grunting, oinking, half in horror, half in piggy delight at the promised acorns. They followed Circe out behind the back of her cottage. She threw the acorns into the muck, and the 22 newly minted pigmen charged into those acorns, wallowing in the mud. Outside of the pigsty, bearing silent witness to the spectacle, there stood a particularly tame pride of lions and a pack of remarkably subdued wolves. Some men behave like pigs when they're offered Zinnia by a stunningly beautiful, seemingly helpless woman. Other men behave like hungry lions, while still others, it turns out, act like a predatory pack of wolves. Circe and her magic knew how to deal with all of them. Now, meanwhile, standing safely outside of the cottage was Eurylochus. The men had gone into that cottage some hours earlier, and as Eurylochus had waited, not hearing a thing, well, none of the men, not even one of them, had come out, not even so much as, as for a piss out beside the forest. It was strange. And then suddenly, Eurylochus heard the sound 
of a cacophony of squealing pigs. And in a panic, realizing what must have, what might have happened, Eurylochus in horror ran all the way back to the beach to Odysseus and the other 22-man team waiting by the ships. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I so wish that I could report the following short dialogue. Eurylochus. Odysseus, Odysseus, the men that you sent with me in search of Xenia? Those men, Odysseus, they're pigs. To which Odysseus could have replied, well, yes, Eurylochus, uh, of course you're right about that. Uh, the boys have grown a little bit rough around the edges. Uh, the decade of camping on the Trojan plain will do that, I suppose. Uh, but don't you worry, Eurylochus. When we finally find our way back to Ithaca again, I'll, I'll, I'll take some time and teach the boys some refresher workshops on city manor, so to speak, before we pull into the harbour. Uh, so what happened with you and the crew back there inland anyway? Eurylochus. Uh, the woman, the woman who owns the cottage, uh, she's stunningly beautiful, Odysseus, uh, absolutely a knockout, uh, but she turned the men into pigs. Odysseus. Well, yes, I suppose it's inevitable that they would be a little bit rude to her. You've got to bear in mind, Eurylochus, that the boys, well, they have only been consorting with a somewhat lower class of lady for the past decade or so. Uh, they might have picked up a little bit more than our usual Bronze Age misogyny along the way. But, enough of that. Let's get back to that bit about the woman you mentioned. Uh, stunningly beautiful, you say. Now that is interesting. Uh, paint me a picture of her, if you don't mind, Eurylochus. Uh, take your time with it. But sadly, ladies and gentlemen... Homer's written account of Eurylochus's report to Odysseus leaves out that wonderful bit of dialogue. And I have absolutely no doubt that the dialogue existed in the pre-Homeric oral tradition. Absolutely no self-respecting oral storyteller in the world would allow for a double play on the men are pigs and let that go by the wayside. And this is Homer, who has already milked the no one in the cave joke to its full comic potential just a few islands back. But sadly, all that we have in the published Homeric text of the Odyssey is Eurylochus returning back to Odysseus and, after considerable incoherent tears and blubbering, reporting that the men had stepped into Circe's cottage and the 22 men had not come out. Eurylochus feared the worst. He was quite convinced that those men had died. And of course, that left Odysseus, the commander-in-chief, with a problem. And the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is Odysseus needed those 22 men. He needed to get those 22 men back because it would be well-nigh impossible to manage and sail a ship of Odysseus's size with only half a crew. So that meant the second half of the team, the 22 reserve men at the boat, were somehow going to have to head back into the cottage and figure out what happened to the 22 first men. But Eurylochus and those 22 men sitting beside the boat, they were going nowhere. In fact, Eurylochus grasped Odysseus by the knees in a gesture of supplication. Captain, he said, leave me behind. Don't force me to go back there. I know that you will never come back or bring out the others. Captain, let's cut and run with the rest of us here. We can still escape. And folks... That was the general consensus among the remaining 22 crew members. Cut and run. Most of the crew, they were convinced, were already dead. So let's the rest of us get out of dodge and fast. 
and poor Odysseus. As a commander with a lot of military experience, he recognized the psychology. In warfare, ladies and gentlemen, well, all men, however brave, at some stage reach a breaking point where they cannot, indeed will not, go on any longer. And once they have reached that breaking point for a commander to force those men on, well, it presents as many hazards and dangers to the mission as it does to let the men have a rest and a chance to recover their wits. So Odysseus, realizing that his men had reached that breaking point, gave them all a pass on the rescue mission. The rest of you, stay by the ship. Get yourselves some rest. Have something to eat and drink. But I need to go. I don't have another choice. And with that, Odysseus headed into the forest. Now, folks, I would like to commend Odysseus at this point for being heroic, for setting out boldly into the deep, dark woods to save his 22 men. But I, I can't help but be, well, at least draw your attention to the fact that only one island earlier, Odysseus had blithely allowed 11 ships and 540 crew members to go to their death at the hands of giant cannibal people without making very much of an effort to save those men's lives. Uh, so now, what is it here about, well, 22 missing sailors that has suddenly summoned up the inner superhero inside of our boy Odysseus? And if you will forgive me for being uncharitable, could it be that the new variable in this island, as opposed to the island of the Lastragonian giant people, is Eurylochus's report of a particularly smoking hot woman waiting inland? Well, whatever the case may be, Odysseus armed himself with his silver-studded sword. Try saying that fast three times, ladies and gentlemen. And then headed into the forest. And there, Odysseus met with some very timely and very good fortune. Odysseus encountered Hermes, the messenger god. Now, you have met Hermes in Homer's Iliad, an earlier work. Uh, Hermes shows up in that particular work as a comely young lad of about 13 years old who is playful, cheerful, and has a remarkably good nature and actually seems to enjoy spending time chatting with and enjoying the company of human beings. In the Iliad, Hermes shows up in Book 24 to help escort poor old King Priam into the tent of his enemy Achilles. So, this is the very same Hermes. Odysseus looked up and Hermes spoke. So, where are you going, poor fellow? Cross the hills all alone, without knowing the country? Your comrades are here in the house of Circe. They're penned in the styes like pigs. I bet you've come here to save them. It's more likely that you're going to get yourself caught, though. But don't you be worried. I will protect you. Now, folks, at that point, the god Hermes had reached down to the forest floor and plucked a small plant with white flower and black root. Hermes then handed the plant to Odysseus. So long as you have this with you, you will be immune from all of Circe's magic, Hermes went on to explain. Now, clearly, Hermes was familiar with Circe's modus operandi, because after providing Odysseus with the plant he went on to offer Odysseus precise and detailed instructions on how to deal with the enchantress Circe. Hermes explained to Odysseus that Circe would mix him a drink, 
which Odysseus, now protected by the magic plant, could consume with gusto and without any fear to his safety. And then, Hermes explained, she will tap you with her magic wand, and she will expect you to transform into some form of an animal, a pig, a wolf, or a lion. But her magic, of course, won't work because of that plant that I have given you, Odysseus. Now, Hermes went on to explain that timing was everything at this point. When Circe picks up her wand and taps you with it, Odysseus, then draw your sword and rush straight at her as though you were going to kill her. She will be frightened. Now, Hermes explained that, and to me, ladies and gentlemen, it makes perfect sense. After all, if you are an enchantress and then suddenly mid-enchantment, well, the batteries in your magic wand die... And the man that you were hoping to transform, now realizing what was about to happen, is rushing you with a sword. Well, very frightened seems like the appropriate response from Circe. But Hermes and folks, in the very same breath, continued his advice to Odysseus. She will be very frightened. But then? Well, she will invite you to go to bed with her. Now, no doubt, Circe the temptress slash enchantress had long ago figured out that, well, if your own magic wand isn't working, then focus on the gentleman's. But even now, Hermes was not done with his advice to Odysseus. Now, don't refuse her invitation to bed, Odysseus, if you want her to free your comrades and treat you well. But... Force her to swear that she will not plot any further mischief against you. Or else, when she has you naked, she will do something that will destroy your courage and... And doubtless, folks, this next part commanded Odysseus's full attention. And she will destroy your manhood too. Well, after Hermes provided that somewhat bracing advice to Odysseus, he vanished. Odysseus tells us what he did next. I went onward, pondering many dark thoughts. Most of them, no doubt, focused on that bit about destroying Odysseus's manhood. Eurylochus's cut-and-run strategy was beginning to look an awful lot more attractive. But Odysseus, to his credit, Odysseus carried on, and soon he reached the front entrance of Circe's cottage. And Circe, she stepped out of the cottage, opening her door. Now, for Circe, this was a pretty good day as an enchantress. Uh, First of all, just hours early, a party of 22 sailors had shown up at her door, and she had managed to very quickly transform them into pigs. And, And now, just as she was getting the cottage back into nice, neat shape again, well, here was a solitary sailor arriving at her door, seeking Xenia. This was a really good day in the enchantress industry. So, Circe, of course, proceeded into her usual modus operandi invitation of Xenia routine. She invited the stranger into her home. She provided the stranger with a comfortable chair. She offered to mix the stranger a drink. And then, when her back was turned to the stranger, she slipped something special and magical into that stranger's drink. You know, folks, we can only imagine the fun that Polytropus Odysseus would be having at this stage. Here he was inside of Circe's cottage, but now that he knew that he was immune from harm, and he knew what Circe's modus operandi and plan was, well, Odysseus, Polytropus Odysseus, would have a great time playing along. 
So as Circe mixed the drink and handed it to him, Circe, of course, being confident that within moments of consuming said drink, Odysseus would begin to morph into some form of animal, well, Odysseus very eagerly and very politely gulped down the drink in one huge gulp. Now, there would have been a little wee bit of anxiety, of course, in the back of Odysseus's brain. Uh, was that cute, sweet-faced teenage boy out there in the forest really the god Hermes? Uh, because if he wasn't really the god Hermes, then Odysseus was now a dead man or, I suppose, a, a living animal at this stage. But Odysseus, not noticing or feeling any ill effects of Circe's first drink, decided to play along. So smiling, he might have asked Circe for a top-up and then possibly even complimented her on her excellent mixology skills. And now Circe, of course, from her perspective, well, she had given the stranger her magical potion drink, and uh, by all intents and purposes, uh, he should begin to uh, be sprouting some form of whiskers or fur or, or horns or something like that at this stage. But when nothing happened, Circe, in a panic, resorted to her magic wand. So reaching out, she grasped the wand and firmly struck Odysseus on the shoulder with said wand. Be off, pig! Go to the sty and wallow there with the other animals. Circe spoke. And that, of course, is when Odysseus, precisely following Hermes' detailed instructions, drew his sword and faked a lunge at the temptress. While Circe screamed, she dodged the blade, and then in the standard Bronze Age act of supplication, Circe dropped to her knees clasped her hands around Odysseus's waist and looked up into his eyes. Who are you? Where are you from? I am wonderstruck. You, you drank my drugs, but you're not bewitched. Never has any other man withstood my potion. You, you have a mind in you that no magic can enchant. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Circe, in an audacious act of chutzpah that would leave lesser temptresses reeling, continued her speech. Come, sheath your sword. Let us go to bed together. And, in making love, we will learn how to trust each other. But folks, Odysseus, our boy Odysseus was having absolutely none of it. Circe, how can you ask me to deal gently with you? You turned my men into pigs. And now, now that you have me here, you're trying to get me into your bed so that you can lie with me naked and, and destroy my courage along with my manhood? Nothing could make me go to bed with you, goddess. But folks, we only have Odysseus's account of what transpired next. I suppose whatever happens on Circe's island stays on Circe's island, so to speak. But clearly, the effect of a stunningly hot temptress on her knees, hands around our boy's waist, uh, looking up at Odysseus with those big, smoky bedroom eyes of hers, well... Odysseus paused for dramatic effect, or possibly dramatic reconsideration, and continued his speech after the Nothing could make me go to bed with you, goddess, bit with 
Or, uh, before I do go to bed with you, I demand that you swear an oath that you will plot no further mischief against me. And to make a long story short, ladies and gentlemen, Circe swore the oath, and in our hero's words, and then I mounted Circe's gorgeous bed. And folks, I can report that our storyteller Homer quite tastefully leaves the enchantress slash temptress slash goddess and our boy Odysseus to their own devices in the bedroom and directs our attention to another part of the cottage where Circe's four handmaidens are diligently at work. What they're doing, of course, is preparing a post-coital bath for our boy Odysseus along with clean clothes, drinks, and a really, really nice dinner. And sometime later in the afternoon, when I suppose Odysseus and Circe have sufficiently learned to trust each other, Odysseus is sitting at the dinner table beside Circe. But it turned out that Odysseus wasn't hungry. He just simply couldn't force himself to eat. And Circe was confused. Why are you sitting this way, Odysseus? Like a mute gnawing your heart and refusing to touch any of the food or drink. Are you worried that I will find some other way to entrap you? You needn't be. I have sworn an oath. To which Odysseus had replied, Circe, how could a decent man bear to eat or to drink before he had rescued his comrades? Now, leaving aside the rather minor quibble that our decent man seems to have found plenty of time for sex with Circe prior to rescuing his comrades, Odysseus now proceeded to ask Circe if she might, if she didn't so much mind, retransform Odysseus's crew back into human beings again. And Circe, as promised, did so. In fact, the crew members that were re-transformed emerged from their previous pig bodies with even more glorious human bodies than they had had before the transformation began. They stepped into the cottage, they saw Odysseus, and they quite understandably burst into tears of joy and of relief. And ladies and gentlemen, at that stage, Circe somehow moved by the entire transformative experience, I suppose, transformed herself from evil temptress into the most generous and enthusiastic purveyor of Xenia in the entire Mediterranean basin. Go, Circe said, go, Odysseus, get the other half of your crew. Will I prepare a lavish feast for all of you? So Odysseus, our boy, rushed back through the forest to his ship, bearing good news to the 22 crew members who, while were cowering there in fear, quite convinced that Odysseus, too, was now likely a dead man. Well, Odysseus shared the good news. Uh, she was an evil enchantress. Uh, she turned the men into pigs. But now, boys, she's a good enchantress. She has turned the men back, and she has invited us to stay on her island for a while. And trust me, boys, uh, Circe's hospitality? <clears throat> Absolutely first-rate. Well, the men were absolutely thrilled and right ready to follow Odysseus back to Circe's cottage. Except for Eurylochus. But ladies and gentlemen, Eurylochus was having none of it. Uh, 
In fact, Eurylochus turned to his 22 comrades and began to berate them. Are you crazy, boys? Why go looking for trouble in Circe's palace? What makes you think she won't turn you into pigs, or into lions, or into wolves? Boys, don't you remember the Cyclops? Our friends, they went into the Cyclops' cave because of Odysseus, and, and it was because of Odysseus's recklessness that our friends died. Now, Eurylochus's words were bitter, they were accusatory, but they also contained a very deep and ringing statement of the truth of what had happened the last time that Odysseus had confidently ensured a crew of brave men that an island was a safe place to be. And perhaps Eurylochus's truth and bracing words were too much for Odysseus's liking. After all, he still had the hospitality of Circe's bed fresh in his mind. Odysseus tells us what he did next. As Eurylochus spoke, I considered drawing my sword and cutting off the man's head. But my comrades, well, they restrained me. And in the end, ladies and gentlemen, all 22 men, plus Eurylochus, decided to head back inland to Circe's cottage and promised hospitality. Eurylochus decided to come along with us too, Odysseus recounts, since he was afraid to any further displease me. And so eventually, the entire crew was reunited, and after Circe and her four handmaidens had managed to provide hot baths, hot oil rubbed downs for the entire crew, and fresh clothes for all, well, the feasting and the drinking, it began in earnest. And Circe, previously an evil practitioner of the very worst forms of Xenia, transformed herself, if anything, into an almost too perfect hostess. Stay here, she encouraged the men. Refresh yourselves with my food and my abundant wine. For you are tired and you're discouraged. You are constantly brooding upon your miseries. You have lost all pleasure in living. And so, Odysseus and his men stayed on Circe's island, quite voluntarily enjoying Circe's food and wine. And Odysseus, of course, continued to enjoy the bonus Xenia, if you will, of sharing the ever-so-interesting bed of a gorgeous goddess. It was a pretty sweet life, especially if you were Odysseus. But eventually, ladies and gentlemen, Circe's hospitality began to wear rather thin on Odysseus's crew. Uh, for one thing, of course, they weren't enjoying some of the side bonus benefit Xenia that Odysseus was enjoying upstairs in Circe's bedroom every night. But there was actually much more to it than that. Uh, the days, as they say inside of the epic tradition, well, the days had turned into weeks, and then the weeks had turned into months, and then one day the men of Odysseus's crew realized that they had been camped out on Circe's island for a full year. And still their captain, their Odysseus, well, he was showing absolutely no interest whatsoever in making it home. He seemed to have absolutely no interest at all in the island of Ithaca. He seemed to have absolutely no interest at all in his wife Penelope and absolutely no interest at all in his son Telemachus. He was enjoying, exclusively enjoying, the companionship 
of the Enchantress, Circe. Finally, the crew realized we have to do something about this. Now, they, they wanted to broach the subject with Odysseus, something along the lines of, uh, Captain, do you think maybe someday soon we should uh, think of setting sail, Captain? But of course, the crew were in a very delicate position. They, uh, they were afraid to raise any of their concerns about the length of their stay anywhere inside of earshot of the Enchantress Circe herself. Uh, oh, sure, now she was all sweetness and light and, and hadn't done anything evil or magical to them for the last year, but some of those men clearly still remembered being turned into pigs, and they in no way wanted to forget Circe's dark side, if you will. But finally, finally, a delegation of them agreed that somebody had to speak blunt words to Odysseus. So one day, when Circe was absent from Odysseus's side, members of the crew stepped forward. Captain? Captain, this is madness. It is time to leave now, if we ever hope to return to our own dear country. And folks, it is an interesting sidebar to note that on an earlier island, the island of the Lotus Eaters, it had been Odysseus who had had to drag his men away from that temptation and remind his men of the homecoming. But here, well, here in Circe's island, it was a crew having to save Odysseus and reminding Odysseus that he had a home. And the only difference appears to be, of course, inside of the nature of the temptations. It turns out, ladies and gentlemen, that our boy Odysseus seems able to just say no to drugs. But as to the bed of a pretty woman, well, I suppose all epic heroes have some sort of an Achilles heel, don't they? But finally, reluctantly, after repeated pestering by the men, Odysseus did approach Circe, informing her that it was time for he and his crew to be making their way onwards towards home. Whenever you aren't with us, Circe, Odysseus complained, my men, well, they keep whining to me and, and pestering me with complaints. But Circe, the goddess, kept her word. Not a problem. Whenever you're ready to leave, I will help you out. But Odysseus, before you can return to Ithaca, before you can have your homecoming, I'm afraid, Odysseus, that you need to embark on another journey first. And ladies and gentlemen, once Circe detailed the specifics of that journey, the destination, and what Odysseus would have to do when he arrived at that destination, well, Odysseus's response to Circe's information just tells us how grim that journey was going to be. Odysseus tells us what he did. As I listened to her, my heart sank. I burst into tears and I fell down onto the bed. I felt that I couldn't bear to live anymore and behold the sunlight. So, Odysseus and Circe, well, they spent one final night together. And then the following morning, putting on his bravest commander-in-chief face, Odysseus summoned his crew. Get up, my friends. It is time for us to be on our way. Circe has told me exactly what we must do. And for a few brief moments, the eager crew of 45 men cheered. But then, of course, Odysseus detailed the specifics of the other journey that the ship and crew were going to have to take first. And, ladies and gentlemen, well, that killed any happy departure in an instant. The crew's hearts sank, and sobbing, 
tearing their hair, weeping and groaning in fear. The one remaining ship of Odysseus and his small, tiny remaining crew set sail away from Circe's island into the darkness. So folks, just before we dive into the post-story commentary, a quick little note. All of my commentaries, of course, cover content and concepts and really cool trivia related to Homer, Greek epic, and the Bronze Age. But at my heart, folks, I am first and foremost a storyteller and certainly not an ancient Greek scholar. So, if you really want to dive into some subject related to the ancient Greek world in some seriously scholarly depth, then a podcast that you should check out is titled Ancient Greece Declassified. Now, the format of this podcast is simple. In each episode, the host of the podcast, a guy named Dr. Lantern Jack, well, Dr. Lantern Jack interviews some eminent expert on some particularly interesting element of the ancient Greek world. Now, there's three particular things that I like about this podcast. First of all, Lantern Jack knows his stuff, which means that he comes to each interview well prepared with insightful and provocative questions. He does not waste his guests' time. Next, the guests, whether remarkably interesting, highly qualified, and the subjects that they cover and address in his podcast are really, really diverse. And finally, the production quality and the audio quality of Ancient Greece Declassified, well, it's first rate. So, listening to this podcast, I find an ear-pleasing experience. Now, on a personal note, I found two of the episodes I've listened to recently, one on the Iliad and the other, of course, on the Odyssey, to be vastly enriching and highly useful in helping me to create my own podcast productions. So once again, folks, the podcast to check out, if you want a deep dive into the ancient Greek world, is titled Ancient Greece Declassified. It's well worth giving a listen. And now, on to our post-story commentary. Now, folks, the central purpose of this commentary is to address the issue of Odysseus's year on Circe's island, and more specifically, to address the issue of our boy Odysseus's year in the goddess Circe's gorgeous bed. So, a little wee bit of context here about why I am doing this post-story commentary. As you know, when I'm not podcasting, I spend an awful lot of my time in the role of 21st century Homeric bard. And I travel and I tell stories from the Trojan War epic and from the Odyssey live on stage to all sorts of different paying audiences. Now, sometimes, folks, following my live shows, the agents who have booked me request that I offer something post-performance along the lines of either a post-story commentary or possibly sometimes just an informal question-answer session with the folks inside of my audience. And those question and answer sessions are always a great deal of fun. I learn all sorts of things about what audiences are thinking about these epics. Now, when I have completed telling the Odyssey, and I have a question answer session with my audience, 
The issue that comes up the most frequently inside of that question-answer session is the question of Odysseus's marital fidelity. And it appears, ladies and gentlemen, that 21st century audiences are not at all comfortable with a work of world literature in which the sexual fidelity and faithfulness of the wife, in this case Penelope, is celebrated and indeed obsessed over, while at the same time that woman's husband, Odysseus, is celebrated for betting as many women as he can possibly manage. Now, just a bit of context here. As you know, I have a no-plot-spoilers promise inside of my podcast, so I am only going to address in this post-story commentary our boy Odysseus's time in Circe's gorgeous bet. But I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that on Odysseus's further travels home, there will be more gorgeous beds of more gorgeous women that our boy Odysseus spends some quality time in. And further, just if you've forgotten or if you're not a veteran of Trojan War, the podcast, it does bear remembering that for the previous 10 years of the Trojan War, Odysseus, like all of the other Greek warlords out there in the beaches of Troy, well, Odysseus kept himself very well entertained, thank you very much, through the forced sexual services of the women that the Greeks had captured on their various and sundry military raids. So, while Penelope spent 20 years scrupulously maintaining her sexual faithfulness to her husband, Odysseus, meantime, was enthusiastically spreading his seed far and wide across the Mediterranean basin. Now, what I want to do in this post-story commentary is provide you, my 21st century listeners, with a quick primer on a whole host of possible takes or perspectives on Odysseus's sexual fidelity issues. Now, folks, what follows is simply a survey. I don't have a particular agenda here, and I'm not trying to lead you towards one particular conclusion or value system or belief system. I'm going to leave that to you. All I want to do is provide you with some food for thought when you consider whether Odysseus has indeed cheated on his wife Penelope. So let's proceed. And likely the best place to start is with Homer's perspective on the whole question of fidelity. So a little bit of a timeline context here, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, as you recall, Homer was writing sometime circa 700 BCE. He was telling a story which he was setting about 500 years earlier in the Bronze Age. And the story was wildly popular and informed all sorts of plays and commentaries up to classical Greece, circa 3 to 400 BCE. So generally speaking, inside of all three of these time periods, Homer's account of the Bronze Age, Homer's own time, and inside of classical Greece, here were the sexual rules. Number one, concerning women. A woman was required to remain scrupulously virginal until she was married. And then, once she was married, she was required to remain scrupulously faithful to her husband throughout that marriage. Now, we talked way back in episode number one of Odyssey, the podcast, about all the reasons why this was the case in the ancient Greek world, most of which tied to problems of paternity and making sure that a man's children were a man's legitimate heirs and successors. So now let's just move on to the rules for sexual behavior 
of the ancient Greek world's men. And the rules were very, very simple indeed. A man was welcome, or indeed expected, to have as many sexual partners as he chose, so long as he did not sleep with another man's wife. If he did sleep with another man's wife, he would find himself in some serious legal trouble. And those of you who are veterans of Trojan War, the podcast, will remember a very early episode from that series where a young man named Paris of Troy, who was married at the time to a woman named Enoni, chose to have sex with a woman named Helen of Sparta. Now, the problem was Helen of Sparta was already married to another man named Menelaus of Sparta. And Paris's crime, a crime so grave that it justified the entire Trojan War, was not the crime of cheating on his wife Anoni, but rather it was the crime of violating Menelaus of Sparta's property. By sleeping, of course, with Menelaus of Sparta's wife. Now, as to the culturally and socially acceptable places where a fictional character like Paris or like Menelaus or a warlord like Odysseus could have found sex, or where a real man living inside of this time period could have found sex, well, there were really three options opened to men. They are as follows. Option number one, a man could always have sex with his wife. Because his wife, of course, was definitionally, like his horse, his chariot, and his sword, his property. So he was free to have sex with her whenever, wherever, and however he pleased. But ladies and gentlemen, we need to remember that back in these time periods, marriage was primarily a business transaction. The purpose of marriage was to cement political or financial unions. And the idea of marrying somebody for love or for their long-term companionship was entirely foreign to these cultures. So for a man, the sex that he had with his wife was for the culturally sanctioned purpose of producing legitimate offspring. And with any luck, those offspring, of course, would be male. But any other sex that he had with his wife was purely incidental or an unexpected and pleasant bonus. So let's move on to the second place where a man from these cultures could get some sex. The second option, of course, was with a paid professional. Now, folks inside of the ancient Greek world, like the men of so many world cultures, the men of the ancient Greek world had identified a need for educated, sparkling, witty, and worldly women who also knew their ways rather well around a bedroom. And so, if a man had the fiscal means, he could seek sex from a paid and very expensive courtesan class of Greek women. And there were women inside of the Greek world who were highly educated, allowed out in public, and who were totally tapped into the social, the cultural, and the political concerns of the day. So they made absolutely delightful company and companionship at cocktail parties. And after the cocktail party, well, they were pretty good with, well, they were pretty good in the bedroom too. Now, of course, an awful lot of us in the 21st century are likely wondering, well, why didn't a Greek man just marry a woman who was witty, cultured, educated, worldly, and also pretty good in the bedroom too, and avoid all the trouble of the courtesans? But here's the reason why, folks. Inside of the ancient Greek culture, these girls who were going to become wives 
women like Penelope? They were married off at 13 to 14 years old. And of course, their husbands, when their husbands got married, were already about 30 years old. And these wives, well, they were provided before their marriage with no education beyond weaving and learning how to run household domestic tasks. And after they were married, they were kept cloistered, locked up, and away from social, political, and cultural concerns inside of the ladies' quarters of the palace. So, they had nothing in common with their husbands, they had no way of keeping up with their husbands' interests and concerns, and aside from looking after the household and pushing out babies every few years, they really were of no interest to their husbands at all. Now, if you were a Greek man and you could not afford an expensive courtesan, because you weren't quite so fiscally well off, it bears noting that the ancient Greek world had a thriving, a legal, and a quite socially accepted business in prostitution too. And a man was free, whenever he felt like, to purchase his sexual pleasures on a case-by-case -case basis with whatever women or young adolescent men he fancied and that his pocketbook could afford. And next, of course, option number three for an ancient Greek man looking for some sex. Well, if the man was half decently well off at all, of course, he had a household full of slaves. And if it was simply just a quick itch that required scratching, well, then a slave girl inside of his household could be called upon and required, in fact, to help the man get the job done. Now, that's pretty rough. It's pretty graphic. It certainly offends most of our liberal 21st century sensibilities. But that's the way it was in the ancient Greek world. So, returning to the question of Odysseus and his year in Circe's gorgeous bed, well, as far as Homer and his culture were concerned, Odysseus's behavior was entirely appropriate and indeed to be expected. Circe was an unmarried woman, so Odysseus was not violating another man's property, and in terms of Odysseus's obligations to Penelope, well, as far as Homer's world was concerned, Odysseus had none. So now, let's turn to how Homer tells us that his character Penelope would have felt about her husband's year inside of Circe's gorgeous bed. And ladies and gentlemen, I have to be careful to avoid plot spoilers here. So let's just hypothetically assume, in one possible universe, that somehow, after all of his travels, our boy Odysseus does make it back home and finds himself lying beside his wife Penelope inside of their gorgeous marital bed. And sometime during the course of that night, Penelope rolls over and says, So, husband, it took you ten years to get home. Do you want to tell me the story of your adventures on your homeward-bound journeys? And let's assume that Odysseus smiles and says, I'd be happy to tell you, dear, and launches into a long story. And eventually gets to full disclosure on his year on Circe's island. So the question is this. If Penelope heard that story from her husband, how does Homer, the author of the Odyssey, tell us that Penelope would feel upon hearing that story? So here's the short answer. Ladies and gentlemen, Homer makes it very clear throughout his value system inside of his Odyssey that Penelope's response would be twofold. First of all, she'd be delighted by the story in general about Odysseus's travels, but when it came to the issue of Circe 
and Odysseus in Circe's bed, Penelope would have thought the two following things. Number one, my husband's Kleos is so great, and Penelope might brag about this to her girlfriends, my husband's Kleos is so great that even goddesses want to take my husband to bed. I bet none of you other ladies can say the same about your husbands now, can you? And number two, my husband could have stayed forever on a tropical paradise island with an immortal goddess, but he came home to me instead. He chose me over the bed of that immortal goddess. What greater affirmation of love could a wife ask for from her man? So in short, ladies and gentlemen, Homer, the author, believes that his Bronze Age female character, Penelope, would have had no issues or concerns at all. That, while she was remaining sexually faithful, her husband had been having a year-long romp in the bed of another woman. Now, if you'll permit me a little bit of an aside, folks. Whenever I am recording or preparing for a live show, and I get to the point where my wife is helping me rehearse, and I share these two Penelope perspectives on Odysseus's year in Circe's gorgeous bed with my wife, well, my wife, who is generally very even-keeled, will launch into some rather impressive, invective, and interesting expletives, too. And when I ask her what is bothering her so much, she responds, and I am now paraphrasing, with something along these lines. Give me an effing break. What male author wrote that bullshit explanation? And did that man ever even bother to ask a living, breathing woman, a woman like Penelope, how she would have really felt? It sounds to me, Jeff, like your boy Homer is just one more effing male author penning out some vicarious fantasy wish fulfillment about a world where husbands get to screw around at will and their sweetly chased wives cheer them on from the sidelines. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, my wife's quite articulate complaint gets at the heart of the problem. Do we have any real way of knowing what a woman from Penelope's culture really would have felt about the sexual double standard rules that dominated and informed her culture. In other words, if we don't want to trust to Homer's account of how things operated and of how women like Penelope felt, is there a historical record that we can turn to instead? And unfortunately, the short answer to that problem, at least to the limits of my historical expertise, is that there is not. We do not, ladies and gentlemen, appear to have any documents written by women from these time periods which come anywhere near articulating a woman's perspective on what we perceive as the sexual double standard. In fact, all of our written accounts from this time period are penned by male writers, so all of the words of our female characters are, of course, female characters written by men. And in fact, folks, the only example I know of a woman actually complaining about the sexual double standard actually occurs inside of the Odyssey. And we'll get to it in episode number seven. But in that particular case, the woman who is doing the complaining is a very 
powerful goddess. And so she is not, of course, bound by the codes, the mores, or the cultural rules that govern mere mortal women. And if you would just permit me a final aside before we move on. Folks, this particular lack of historical female voices has given rise to a very contemporary and 21st century temptation. And ladies and gentlemen, that temptation is for those of us telling these stories in the 21st century to graft on to our stories our own 21st century sensibilities and values packages. And so we are tempted to say things like this. Well, of course, the women of Homer's time period were offended, hurt, and angered by the sexual double standard in their culture, but they did not dare to articulate that out loud, because if they did, they lived, or they died, to regret it. Or sometimes we say something along these lines. Well, of course, the women of Homer's time period were unconsciously offended, hurt, and angered by the sexual double standard in their culture, but they were so deeply and fully indoctrinated into that culture's systems of oppression that they could not even find or conceptualize the words for how badly and terribly they were being oppressed. Now, I recognize that I'm wading into difficult waters here, and if I wade in any further, I'll be beyond my depth. But folks, it seems to me that trusting to Homer's male account of how women in his culture felt about the sexual double standard is, at best, problematic. But it strikes me as equally problematic to assume that the women living in Homer's culture shared entirely the identical values, beliefs, and experiences as do women living in 21st century liberal democracies. So, to bring this whole problem back to Penelope, if Penelope was a living, breathing, real-life wife of a Bronze Age Greek warlord husband, well, how would she really feel? If her husband had multiple sexual partners, while she remained cloistered in the ladies' quarters, hidden from sight, and sexually faithful? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the best that I can do inside of my podcast presentation is to try to imagine sympathetically how Penelope might feel. But the truth of the matter is, and I know this, my Penelope is as much a creation of 21st century Jeff as it is a creation of 8th century BCE Homer. And neither Homer's creation of Penelope, or Jeff's, I imagine, really reflect how the real Penelope would have felt if anybody back then had bothered to ask her and then write her feelings down. So, let's move on. And folks, I want to actually take a little diversionary excursion, if you will allow me, into an entirely different take on Odysseus's year inside of Circe's gorgeous bed. Ladies and gentlemen, there is at least a couple of thousand-year-old industry in telling the story of Odysseus's year in Circe's gorgeous bed as the story of an innocent, helpless man caught up in the clutches of an evil temptress. 
So a little bit of context is in order here. Pretty well since Homer's Odyssey was published, there has been a long-standing tradition of reading Homer's Odyssey as some sort of a coded allegory. And of course, it's the easiest thing in the world to do because Odysseus lands on a whole series of islands. And of course, in each island, he meets some very unique and easily identifiable and easily turned into allegory, of course, monster or temptation. So the early Neoplatonist philosophers, they took the Odyssey and they retold the story or they interpreted the story as an allegorical journey towards spiritual enlightenment with each island serving as a stepping stone towards the ultimate destination. And then, of course, the early Christian community, well, they turned the entire story into an allegory, with each of the islands representing one of the possible seven deadly sins. And the sin in question, of course, on Circe's island, is the sin of lust, particularly the sexual variety of lust. Now, ladies and gentlemen, these stories of femme fatales, of painted ladies, of sirens, of seductresses, call them what you want, well, these stories are ancient archetypes that permeate and pervade all sorts of cultures all over the world. But the plot line of the stories is always remarkably familiar. And it goes something like this. A virtuous, well-meaning man is setting out on some journey to do good. And then he is distracted from that journey by a woman. And the woman's goal, of course, is to lead the man away from the paths of righteousness and into corruption and sin. And the tool that the woman employs in order to corrupt, to ensnare, and to entrap that good man is sex. And so the man powerless against the sex, strays from the paths of righteousness and falls into an abyss of carnal lust and pleasure. Now, in all of these stories, of course, the good man eventually wakes up and comes to his senses. And then he sees through the facade of the woman's gorgeous body to the festering, corrupting, cancerous evil at that woman's core. And the man, of course, escapes the temptress's clutches. And what does he do? Well, he returns once again to the paths of righteousness. He repents his temporary folly, and then he settles down, and he likely marries a nice, good, dutiful, and boring-as-hell virginal girl. And if he is feeling particularly self-righteous about his whole transformative experience, he then publishes a detailed confessions all about it. Now, of course, folks, it's an age-old misogynistic story, and we know it very well. But our question right now in this post-story commentary is whether there is anything inside of Homer's Odyssey which suggests that Homer is trying to tell that particular version of the story. Is Odysseus an innocent man, and has Homer presented Circe as an archetypical temptress or femme fatale? And the short answer, ladies and gentlemen, is there is absolutely nothing of the femme fatale archetype inside of Homer's telling of the story. First off, of course, because it would be entirely illogical and inconsistent with Homer's worldview. 
As we've already discussed, as far as Homer is concerned, Odysseus is not committing any sort of sin at all in having sex with Circe. And further, folks, it's really critical to note that inside of the Odysseus-Circe episode in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus never once has his volition taken away from him. Circe does not use any sort of magical powers to compel Odysseus to stay on her island. And Circe doesn't have any evil intents in keeping Odysseus on her island either. In fact, when Odysseus decides that it is time to head on home, well, Circe proves to be remarkably accommodating and helpful. So, ladies and gentlemen, to conclude, if you come across some version of the Odyssey in which Circe has been sexed up into some sort of a cunning, manipulative temptress who entraps poor innocent Odysseus through her evil, sinful, sexual wiles, well, you are not reading anything to do with Homer. Rather, what you have encountered is a product of a later brand in a particular small subset of Christianity with a moralizing sex is evil and women are sexually dangerous theology behind it. Now, one little final comment, folks. When you get to episode number six of Odyssey the Podcast with me, we are going to witness another character, or to be more accurate, another group of characters that Odysseus encounters on his homeward journey. Now, ladies and gentlemen, inside of Homer's story, the characters that Odysseus meets are dangerous. But they are decidedly not sexually dangerous. They are not femme fatales. They are not temptresses. They are not painted ladies. But... Later in world history, after Homer's time, those characters are going to be transformed by authors, and especially by artists, into archetypical temptresses. And the story of Odysseus meeting these creatures is going to be turned into one more cautionary tale about dangerous women and sex. I can't tell you more now because of plot spoilers, but you will meet those characters in episode number six. So now, just before we wrap up this post-story commentary, what I'd like to do, folks, to conclude is to share with you different responses that I get from 21st century audiences when they hear me tell the story of the year that Odysseus spent inside of Circe's bed. Ladies and gentlemen, it turns out that the greatest complaint of my 21st century listening audience to this story is what they perceive as the lack of a quid pro quo in Odysseus's relationship with his wife. Folks, generally speaking, my listeners don't care one whit what Odysseus and Penelope choose to do inside of their relationship, but the one thing that my modern audiences do seem to care about is that they do demand reciprocity. So, if Odysseus expects Penelope to remain faithful, then according to my listeners, Penelope has an equal right to expect her husband Odysseus to remain faithful too. And when I poll my listeners after live shows, most of them find it nearly impossible to believe that Penelope would be anything but deeply hurt or badly betrayed if she ever learned 
that Odysseus had slept with other women during the ten years of the Trojan War or during his homecoming journey. And my audience tells me that they would be doubly offended that Odysseus, if he was sleeping around, would spend so much of his time worried and obsessed about his wife sleeping around back home at the palace. Ladies and gentlemen, it turns out that modern sexual morality hinges not on questions of what you do or of who you do it with, but rather on questions of reciprocity, of equality, and of mutuality. And with that, folks, well, I have completed the survey as best I can. So now I will just leave it up to you to decide what you think about Odysseus's year in the goddess's gorgeous bed. Meanwhile, we have a rather remarkable episode of Odyssey the Podcast waiting for us in the wings. And if you will recall, folks, Circe has provided Odysseus with some rather grim news about a journey that he first must make if he ever at all hopes to eventually get back home. And that grim journey will form the dark heart of episode number five to follow. So, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. I hope you enjoyed the post-story commentary. Have yourselves awesome days, and you and I will talk again real soon. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>